0: See
1: Hey, everyone. Hi. Hello. Welcome to a very exciting episode of and Rosen is your new best friend. I'm very excited to bring my guest in after what feels like an incredibly long week, I have to say. And this is now the second week in a row, third week in a row where I feel like I am discombobulated and my brain is a little bit of a scrambled egg by the time I'm doing this show. So we'll see how well I hold it together. So I'm very excited to bring my guest in in a moment. But first, I must catch up with my producer, self-described bad boy of podcasting, who recently accrued the moniker via guest AJ Jacobs, most dangerous man in podcasting. I already forgot. Tony Thaxton. I think that he was reaching for bad boy of podcasting, and he produced something even better, most dangerous man in podcasting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He was definitely, he was going for it. He just, you know a slight whiff but I'll take it. I you know, maybe an upgrade.
1: Have yes. you done anything dangerous this week? Like right before the show, I ate some cheese that I think <laughs> might be bad, have been bad. I don't know. It tasted a little bit like it was somewhere in between normal tasting It was mozzarella. So like it was pretty it was either it was like bland, but also a little bit it tasted like a postage stamp. And for very young people who only know of adhesive stamps, back in the day you had to lick them and it didn't taste good. It tasted a little bit like that. I might become violently ill during the show, just to add (laughs) a little bit of suspense. What a tease.
0: What'd you say? I said what a tease for the rest of the show.
1: (laughs) And don't you dare think of if I do, Tony, don't you dare think of editing it out and saving my good name. Don't you dare. I would never, because we 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 keep it real here. That's right. Um. So I've done something dangerous. Have you?
0: Well, uh, let me. Uh, I boy have I got a tale for you. Okay. Because you remember the last couple episodes we've done. Uh, like literally like a minute into the show, my ring light has decided to burn out several times in a row. Mm, yeah. And uh, so clearly, I think I just need to give up on it and get a new one. So I thought, I I'll get, I'll get a new one before the show today. And uh yeah, I forgot to do that. <laughs> so there's my story. <laughs> oh my god. Yep. That's how dangerous I am.
1: Wow, Tony. Ring light. I've got a do, pe- do people know that. you're on the streets?
0: I, I know. But I've got several lights surrounding me. So yeah, <laughs> this is like a fire hazard right now because I don't have my proper <laughs> ring light.
1: You know, as you were saying this, I thought it was going to lead to you having a new ring light. Because I'm right? seeing light bouncing off of your forehead. Yeah. How many lights are we talking
0: about? Well, I guess, well, four actually. <laughs> and these so are got not. One, one from the ceiling, and then I've got a lamp over here, and then I brought another lamp in that's oh over here, and then I put another little light in front of me. Wow. Yeah.
1: You are. You are someone gave you a rule book, you ripped it up, mm-hmm. threw it out downloaded another one straight from the internet and you're going by that one.
0: Oh no, I don't even look at that one.
1: (laughs) And you put that one in your computer trash. Yes. And then you googled another one.
0: Oh no. I binged it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Listen, Tony, we're going to bring in the guest in a second, but on the most recent episode, we shared with everyone that your mom listens to the show and she texted you to ask about Owen, my son's poop situation because he was constipated. <laughs> yeah, uh, and someone tweeted us and said that we need like a drop to indicate, or no, we need. Was it that they wanted a Mama Thaxton segment or a, a Mama s- Thaxton s-
0: drop? Something along those lines. I did see that tweet. Yeah, um, I love I that mean, idea. Well, considering that that's the first time that that's ever happened, and I've been working for you for what three years now, or something. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a pretty uh, (laughs) short segment.
1: That is very Cups Half Empty. Give me her number. This is what I think. (laughs) I think she's a new listener, which delights me. I like to bring in the young people. Um, I think she's a new listener. I think she is the the positive feedback she got <clears throat> from the interaction is going to keep her involved and keep her interacting. And so she's probably listening right now, Hi Tony's mom. And now that she knows that we want her to regularly send in questions and that we're going to come up with a segment, I think she'll be down for that. Is I, I she busy? Know. I mean no she's, offense. No,
0: sh- she's she's no, she's definitely not busy. <laughs> um <laughs> however, my mom my mom's uh, not not real big on attention. So, I don't know how this is going to go. Mm.
1: So when you sent me a screen grab of her question that might not have delighted her. Oh, no, I think
0: I think that's fine. I mean, you know, uh, that was subtle enough and that was just like a quick, you know, in and out. She doesn't know that happened either, so.
1: She probably does because I think she listens now. <laughs>
0: She could have been one and done with the listening. Who knows? Excuse
1: me, that's insulting to me. Um, I know what you mean. <laughs> my parents, as well, my mom especially, is always like, "I don't, don't, don't make fun of me on the show." And she's yeah. she's very hesitant. She doesn't trust me.
0: Yeah, I think with mine. It's of more her. of it's it's really more like if it were like an in person situation. Yes, and there's lots of people. Like I don't think she likes attention called to her. Well, this isn't that. I know. I'm just saying, you know, it's it's relatively adjacent.
1: Um, this work your magic, Tony. I realize you're leaving you're leaving to go on tour for a few months. And okay. I'm wondering if she would like to fill in.
0: <laughs> now that I would like to see.
1: <laughs> she could be the most dangerous mom in podcasting.
0: Oh man. The bad
1: mom That's... of podcasting.
0: <laughs> if you knew my mom, I wish yeah, it's unbelievably hilarious.
1: (laughs) All right. Okay. So joining us today, writer, activist, podcast host, you know her as the former host of the hit podcast, Stuff Mom Never Told You. Speaking of mom, Stuff Mom Never Told You, and the current host of the very fantastic podcast, There Are No Girls on the Internet. Please put your hands together for Bridget Todd. you didn't know we have an entire live audience stuffed somewhere. (laughs) We only let them out to welcome our guests and then we put them back in the, um, they live in a box.
2: Yeah, they really are good at performing on command. I had no idea. Yes. (laughs) Good job, guys. Here's your cracker. I just give them crackers.
1: Um, (laughs) I give them goldfish crackers, like my children. Uh, Hello,
2: welcome. I am so excited to be here. Thank you for that warm welcome. And yeah, thanks for having me. How's
1: it going? So where are you? Are you in D.C.?
2: I am based in D.C. Pre-COVID, I was sort of back and forth between New York and D.C., but now I am solidly in our nation's capital full time.
1: Nice. How is it there?
2: Rainy, depressing, cold. (laughs) Uh, It's actually generally nice, but it's been a little bit hard the last few. uh, This week has been a a tough week, I think, for uh, to be living in a a hotbed of politics, I Mm -hmm. guess I will say. Uh, But usually it's pretty good.
1: Right. So this is gonna. So as we are recording this, I I think what you're referring to is the SCOTUS leak, which happened. um, It's Friday right now. That happened on Monday. This is going to be airing a week from Monday, so that will have happened. You know, still pretty fresh. Um, It's pretty depressing, probably everywhere. But yeah, what is what is it like being there right now during this?
2: Oh, what a good question. I, so I was out at the protests that, um, it, honestly, it was like quite spontaneous outside of the Supreme Court on Monday evening of this week after the leak. And I think people, you know, I've lived in DC for a long time and I've seen a lot of like political anger and sort of angst and all of that. I think people are just tired and mm-hmm. exhausted and bedraggled and sort of sick of this kind of thing, sick of feeling like their, their lives are just sort of being toyed with by elected officials and people in power who don't really see them. So I don't know, something about that the mood was a little different. I wouldn't even say it was anger. I think it was just frustration and exhaustion from a lot of folks.
1: That's how I feel. I feel a little bit Hopeless, and like there's not much fight in me. Um, but I don't know if that's accurate. like I was actually I, this is the second podcast I've done today, and earlier today that I was saying that, and then I wanted to clarify that I don't know if the situation is hopeless. I just feel hopeless about it.
2: Oh, wow. I mean, I think that is a completely reasonable way to feel hopeless and tired and sort of sick of this. But I guess for me, the thing that gives me hope when I, you know, our elected officials and the people who are in power are not always going to be there for us. And so you are right to be a little bit skeptical of whether Mm -hmm. or not they're going to, you know, ride for us. But I will always have hope in our ability to ride for each other. And so the thing that gives me hope is that Monday night, people left their homes on a rainy night in DC and, and, and made their voices heard outside the, outside of the Supreme Court. Right. So. I What brings me hope is that there are so many people out there who are still fighting this fight and who are not giving up. And so, you know, I may not always believe in the folks who are in power to, you know, keep us safe, but I believe in us. And that's what al- will always reconnect me to my hope.
1: I'm very impressed by your uh, career and all the things you've done, because I feel like you're really out there fighting for change, making things happen, talking about important things. Whereas I want to be doing that, but I'm more just like sitting here talking about cheese and Tony's mom. No <laughs> offense to Tony's mom, but like, how did you tell me more about, um, you know, how you got into this line of work? Cause cause you've done, I mean, before the show, you were saying it was a long time ago, but I know that you have taught courses and you like trained, you've done all sorts of stuff and you've been involved in activism and like, where did you get your start?
2: Yeah, I love this question. First of all, I have to say, you're doing, I mean, you're not just sitting in a <laughs> microphone talking about cheese. Your work makes people feel less alone, oh, and that's very you. important. Thank so you very much. I don't, much. Want, I don't <laughs> want to belittle it. Um, yeah, my start, so I, my, my story is such a weird one. Um, I, Got my start as a student who was double majoring in English and women's studies because, as my parents said, I really wanted to uh, major in unemployment. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. And, you know, after that, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I went to grad school and I dropped out of grad school, much to my parents' dismay, to teach at Howard University. And one thing about Howard University is their students are the most civically engaged and sort of like social justice minded of any any students I've ever seen anywhere. And so, you know, I was surrounded by these 18, 19 year old young people who felt so empowered to change the world around them. They felt so engaged in all these different political conversations that were happening. These were young people who were coming to me after class and being like, oh, Professor Todd, sign our petition to get the university to stop using XYZ brand of toilet paper because they sponsor private prisons, right? Like they were very, very engaged. And this is a time in my life when I was feeling very disempowered and mm-hmm. disengaged, right? Like I would feel frustrated about things happening in the world around me. And I would go post on my Facebook status and, you know, hit, hit post and be like, take that society. And then it would be read <laughs> by 200 people who are all my friends, right? Like I felt very, very disempowered. And it was, it was being around all of these inspiring young people that really got me thinking about, you know, activism and social change and pursuing that as a career full time. And so I really got to shout out, you know, young people, they really they really are like the ones who are out here making change and inspiring others, myself very much included. I, I can I, I relate
1: to that feeling of feeling disempowered and like posting on Facebook and and then kind of coming up against even though I was never a professor Um and I'm very impressed that you were, the fact that people call you <laughs> Professor Todd, that's very cool. Uh, coming up against young people who are, are wanting to, you know, sign a petition to change the toilet paper. Now this is like, I think my age showing and my cynicism and just my level of exhaustion when they wanted, when they are fighting to change the brand of toilet paper, what is your reaction to that?
2: Oh, I mean, I, I, so part of me feels like you do, right? Where I'm like, oh, your little petition, how <laughs> cute. Like, is it really going to do anything? But I'll sign in if it makes you happy. But I guess another part of me feels that I'm happy that they still feel like their voice matters. You know, mm-hmm. I think that as, I, as I've gotten older, it's been really a, a, a str- I don't want to say a struggle, but it's been a intentional practice of me reminding myself that, you know, I can make a difference. People can make a difference if we organize and get together. Your voice matters. And being around young people who don't even question that, like, of course, my petition is going to make a difference. Of course, my sit-in or demonstration or whatever, is going to make a difference. I completely understand the vibe of feeling a little cynical because Lord knows I feel that way too. But yeah, I just really admire young people who just feel that they... I guess they, they feel, they, it's, they seem very unencumbered by the kind of cynicism that I mm-hmm. feel like I have to really work to not bring it to my yeah. life.
1: Well, I mean, there's definitely a lot of li- limitations to the cynicism because, you know, if it, if it goes too far, it just results in kind of just sitting on the sidelines and being like, it's nihilism. It's nothing's going to make a difference, so why even try? And that's such an a unfortunate place to come from, I think.
2: Totally. Yeah, I, I almost, I mean... I, I will almost say, like, I'm not proud of h- how I have handled the last few years. Like, I think during the thick of COVID, I think I really kind of branched into a cynical vibe of like, nothing matters. I think everything we all did. is made up. Yeah. I, and that was the first time in my life that I, it, it was a low point, I guess I'll say. I think it was a low point for a lot of us. I didn't feel like people in power really saw us as, saw the humanity of just us as people. Uh, I'm sure a lot of folks felt the same way. And it really took a lot of work of grounding myself back into the things that bring me hope, bring me joy, why I do this work. But yeah, it's a, it's a constant practice of not letting those those feelings of nihilism and who, who gives a shit, mm-hmm. you know, dictate your behavior. Because if we all gave into that, it, nothing would change. You know, we would not have any, we would have no hope of change. And so... I think it's normal to have ebbs and flows of feeling empowered and feeling like you know ready and energized to take on fights, and then sometimes you're gonna wake up and be like, none of this matters. It's all made up. Who cares? Why do Why do I do, Why do I do anything? Right. And I think it's about acknowledging those times and and moving through them to get back to the to, to get back to the place of okay, I had my moment of feeling low. Now I'm ready to fight.
1: Um, you said that you ha- were going to grad school and then you dropped out. What What were you studying in grad school?
2: So I was at University of Maryland College Park studying uh, African-American women's literature.
1: So for some reason... Just combined your uh, undergrad stuff.
2: Correct. Yeah, yeah. Again, my parents were like, well, do you want to maybe consider minoring in business or <laughs> just taking a couple of business classes just in case? Uh, yeah. And so... What's funny is that when I was in that program, it was a a PhD program. And so it was going to be like several years until I finished. And I 110% only went to make my parents proud. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're, if, if folks out there who are listening who have PhDs, you know, you really have to be like self motivated to finish a PhD because it's so much work. And one day I just woke up and I was like, I'm so unhappy in this program. I am. By a wide margin, the worst performing student in my program. I need to get out, and I had sunk so much money, and time, and effort into my program that the choice to leave was a tough one. I had a had to have a real come to Jesus moment of, you know, I am leaving my program, and who knows what's next for me, but it's not this. I was terrified to do it. I thought that I had given. I I was there on a a fellowship package, and so. I thought that I was, I had given up my one big chance at Mm. having a big life, a big successful life. I thought like I had it, I blew it, and now it is time for me to accept that I will never have a big successful life.
1: How far in, how many years was the program and how far into it were you?
2: So I was in the program for, I guess, I want to say three and a half or four years. I completed a master's degree and then I was meant it was like a like a combined MA PhD program. So I finished the master's part, I finished the coursework for my PhD, then I needed to like complete all my testing to begin my dissertation. And that was when I hit the wall. Cause it's mm. it's one thing to like show up in classes and take your classes and, and pass them. I was fine with that. But once I had to produce scholarship, mm-hmm. <laughs> that was a whole other like I just I I, I had no business. I, I am not a scholar. I had no business in those programs.
1: Um, what was your dissertation going to be about? Had you decided?
2: I had no idea. That's another. That's another thing. Like I, I was so behind the curve, and I guess a big part of it is that, you know, I got my job teaching full time at Howard while I was still ostensibly supposed to be finishing my PhD. And most people who are in academia, they feel like teaching, like teaching, is secondary to their research and to their, mm-hmm. you know, writing their dissertation and to their scholarship. But for me, it was totally the opposite. I from the first moment I was in front of a class, I felt like I found my place, and I loved to teach. Like it was like I had a I had a personalized license plate that said "Love to Teach." Like that was my vibe, right? <laughs> and so it basically became clear. I was like, I don't like the the scholarship and the act and the the you know dissertation writing and the research. That wasn't what I wanted to be doing. I wanted mm-hmm. to be connecting with young people about about where they were coming from and where they were at. That was what really gave me so much energy.
1: Mhm. So how did your parents take it when you left the program?
2: Oh my god. They I'll put it this way, they still send me like articles about PhD programs to this day. Uh <laughs> it was hard, you know. And I think I grew up in the kind of family like my brother is an attorney, my mom is a medical doctor, a pediatrician, and my dad is a retired engineer. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a family full of like smart, analytical people who are very educated. I'm the least educated person in my family by a wide margin. And I think that I just, in my family, had a very specific understanding of what success looked like. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really have a lot of models for, you know what it would look like to be a success as a podcaster, as an mm-hmm. activist, as an organizer, as a writer. We that just there wasn't like a model for that. Um I, I, I sometimes joke that I'll listen to my mom try to describe to, to strangers what I do for a living as a podcaster. Sometimes she'll say I'm a blogcaster. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they they took it hard. And I think I really had to come to terms with a lot of stuff in terms of choices that I was making for them. You know, I, I, I realized in my young adulthood that I was really setting myself up to live a life for my parents, mm-hmm. but they weren't living that life. I was, right? And so right. you can't live your life for somebody else. Like, you're the one who has to go to the classes that you feel woefully inadequate to perform in. You're the mm-hmm. one who has to, like, stay up late writing the papers that you don't even want to be writing, right? Mm-hmm. And so I realized, I was like, I have to live my life and make my choices for myself. And my parents will come come around. And it was tough, but they did. You know, I, I think that they are uh, interested in the work I do now. They don't fully get it. Uh, but they're. I, I love the fact that your mom is listening to the show. So like <laughs> my, my parents don't listen to the podcast, my podcast at all. Uh, but yeah, they came around. What
1: part of or what part of the country did you grow up in?
2: So I grew up in uh, Richmond, or right outside of Richmond, Virginia, in a very small town called Midlothian, Virginia. I I know it. Do you know it? How?
0: I I used to live in Mechanicsville.
2: Oh my god! What? Okay, (laughs) wait, wait, wait. When did you live there? Like, high school age, or?
0: Yes, I lived there from, like, 92 till, like, 2000, like, mid, like, yeah, like, mid-2000, like, 2007,
2: Oh my god, where did you go to high school? At Lee. At least I went to St. Gertrude. Nice. <laughs> but I would have gone to Midlothian had I gone to public school.
0: Nice. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, my, my parents are still there. So that's where my mom is listening from.
2: Oh, my God. Also, I have to say, when you asked, like, is your mom busy? <laughs> that was the funniest. <laughs> I don't think about that question is very funny to me. <laughs> like, <laughs> is she a busy lady?
1: <laughs> Although it
2: sounds like your mom
1: is a busy lady if she's a pediatrician.
2: Oh, my God. My mom is the hardest working person I have ever met in my life. Uh, shout out to my mom. She grew up very, very poor. Uh, she is com- a completely self-made woman. She was uh, a, you know, a-, a-, a child who put herself through school and you know, had children and like was a a domestic employee to put herself through medical school. My mom is, my mom works harder than anybody I've ever met in my life. And she has faced things that if I had to face, I would fall apart. And she has blown through every obstacle in her path, like a goddamn dynamo. So my mom is a hard, I've never met anybody like my mom. She's so hard working. I don't know where, like, I wish it had rubbed off on me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God.
1: I feel like it did. I think maybe I feel like in some it ways.
2: In some ways, I think yeah, so. Like I, mean, I, like I
1: read re- reread real- read your bio. <laughs> <laughs> she'll be happy to hear that. <laughs> what were you gonna say? You were saying you never
2: Yeah, I mean that she'll it's one of those things where it's like when I'm having a bad day, and if I call her, I'm like, Yeah, the podcast, like a guest flaked on me, and then this didn't work out, and she's like, Oh yeah, I just saved a child from literal death. So Bad day, huh? <laughs> it's like, like her set of circumstances is very different than my own, yeah. and I'm very like aware of that,
1: yeah, um so you said that you had uh some moments of nihilism during the pandemic, and then you had to reconnect with the things that are important to you, and what are those things?
2: Oh, what a good question It's my community, I think uh you know I've lived in d c for most of my adult life, and i I love it here, and I've lived in the same place for a really long time, and I think. Not being able to physically reconnect with, like, my bodega guy and the woman who sells mangoes on the street, Mm -hmm. like, not being able to to connect with those people safely in person, I think was creating a situation where I forgot that I was a part of a community. And I think being in my apartment just, like, by myself, watching all of this horrible stuff on the news and feeling so disempowered and disconnected... I, it, it was like I had forgotten that there is an entire world right outside on my block that I love connecting with, that I, that, that fuels me, that, that really is a big part of who I am and how I show up in the world. And so I think once I found ways to safely reconnect with my actual community here in DC, I felt so much better. But I think what, what it really taught me was that, you know, even if you don't feel, even if you're someone who doesn't feel like you can trust elected officials to you know, support you and have your back and make decisions that are going to, you know, make your life better. There's somebody out there, like whether it's your local community or, you know, your local mutual aid or whatever, there's always somebody out there who you can connect with. And so I think even though I did feel this, this real deep disappointment and disillusionment in my kind of like leaders at the federal level, it was the, the, the super local level that like woke me back up and brought me back home and reminded me like, oh, yeah, I I'm not a nihilist. I actually really believe in the power of people, the power of community, the power of hope, the power of joy. Like, that's what fuels me. But I, I forgot for a little while. I really lost myself for a bit mm-hmm. there during the pandemic.
1: Um, so tell me about there are no girls on the Internet. And also, are you still doing ultraviolet?
2: Yes. So I am still at Ultraviolet. We are a gender justice organization uh, of about 2 million people nationwide fighting for a more gender-just world and an anti-racist feminist future. And I am the host of iHeartRadio's podcast, There Are No Girls on the Internet, where we really want to tell the story of the way that traditionally marginalized folks, so women, people of color, queer folks, trans folks, um, and all kinds of folks who are traditionally marginalized, are showing up on the internet and making the internet Safer, more inclusive, and also just a more fun place, right? Like, whenever there's something fun popping off on Twitter, usually there is a, like a, like a traditionally marginalized person behind it, right? Like, what would Twitter be if it was, if it was not for us, our humor, our jokes, our joy that we bring? And so I wanted to create a platform that could really tell that story and meaningfully center those voices that I know make the internet what it is.
1: Um, and, uh, you know it was interesting. I was listening to the episode, um, and I'm gonna, I'm forgetting the specific title. It was the one that you the you did like an encore presentation. Oh of, yeah,
2: um, is it uh black women the, the episode on black women and Twitter?
1: Yes, and the your mm-hmm. your slip is showing, which reminded me of something. So my I have my dad is um 88, and he, his like go to insult not like sincere, but insult like an insult that is very similar is like your stockings are sagging (laughs) and I'm wondering and he so he's a doctor and he had interned in St. Petersburg sorry he had interned in St. Petersburg Virginia and I'm wondering he never told me the origin of it but I'm wondering if it's similar to your slip is showing it It sounds like the same
2: yeah yeah so for folks who don't know your slip is showing is this like uh I guess it's a phrase that in the South, kind of means like, oh, like, you don't look as put together as you think. It ha- that it has to be. Your slip is showing, your stockings are showing, there has to be some connection. I refuse to believe that they're just two like independent things, or has to be.
1: Right. Um Yeah, it's like this thing that like on the surface kind of sounds not that vicious, but it like it's but it has this like very cutting meaning. Mm-hmm. Um but anyway, it's a very fascinating episode. Everyone should go listen to it. Um, but this this woman that you interview sort of realizes that there's all these people impersonating uh African American Twitter users. And right. at what like what year was that that, that 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 sort of came to a head, would you say?
2: This was circa like twenty fourteen.
1: Okay, so this was a while ago. because um, I just had this this thing. uh, I definitely did not uncover a big thing or anything. But okay, so I was at uh, Disneyland this past weekend. And I witnessed this incident that like stuck with me, uh, which I talked about on the show. But anyway, to make it real fast, uh, this little girl was crying. And her dad said to her, stop crying. Stop crying right now. If you don't stop crying, I'm going to spank you. Um, I'll take you to the bathroom and spank you right now. I will. It's not a big deal. And I was just so like bothered by it. And um, I tweeted about it and I was like, I feel, you know, murderous right now. Um, and most people who responded, responded in a like, that's so awful way. And then this guy wrote like, um, what did he write? He was like, what's wrong with that? Happens in Mexican-American households all the time. And he <sighs> was Mexican. So I didn't even engage with it because I'm like, I don't. Is he is he really defending it? And I don't even want to get near that. But then I got another comment from someone that was very similar. It was like, um, my dad did it to me and I turned out fine. His dad did it to him and he turned out fine. But his name was like Mexalente something. And I looked oh. and I'm like, this guy is a troll. This is a racist troll. And then it made me wonder about the other guy. So I this is – and I have noticed before – um people definitely impersonating people of color on Twitter. This is like a oh, whole yeah. icky thing.
2: Oh, it happens all the time. I would say if you ever, I mean, it's so I guess I want to break down what you experienced. It sounds like you have this gut feeling that something about this interaction doesn't sit right with me. Like I can't put my finger on it, but something about this isn't feeling authentic to me or it doesn't just feel doesn't feel right. Yeah, you should absolutely go with that feeling. Right. And so I would say like, if you're ever interacting with somebody on Twitter, you know what it feels like to be interacting with with an authentic person. Right. Even if it's somebody who doesn't agree with you or is expressing an opinion that you don't hold, you know, when you're you're having an authentic exchange. That's so true. If if your spidey senses are going up that you're like, this feels off. You are absolutely correct to, like, not engage. And the fact that you got two similar people saying similar things, that's also kind of, like, giving me a little bit of a a pause. Um, And so, so many times, like, you would be surprised how often tweets or things that we post on social media, you're thinking it's just an innocuous thing. Someone can post that on another forum off of Twitter and say, like, oh, look at this person. Let's go all... You know, be rude to her, or let's right. all go like mess with her. Happens all the time. And especially so if,
1: and especially when it's a bunch of them, and you look and they're not even following you. It's like, how did you even find me?
2: Exactly, because how would they, how would they find you? It's not. It's if they don't follow you. It's not like yeah, exactly. And so, I think that you did exactly the right thing by not responding to them because, you know, I, I think on Twitter and on social media in general, not everybody is there for a thoughtful expression and engage of ideas <laughs> Some people that is such an understatement <laughs> yeah I'll, that, I'll, that's my nice way of putting it it's yeah. like you don't need to spend your energy or your time engaging with people who are committed to misunderstanding you committed right. to misrepresenting you that's not a, that's not a good, a good use of your time and so once you get that feeling in your gut of like this doesn't feel like a like an interaction that's on the level i 100% encourage folks to just ignore like not every interaction on Twitter deserves your energy or your time, or even frankly, a response.
1: I saw this thing on Twitter. Was it, it might've been Bethany Frankel. And if it was, I feel like this is like the second or third time I've mentioned her on podcast this week. I don't know what's going on there. I've watched too much Bethany Frankel on TikTok. It might've been someone else though. It was someone on TikTok who was like, um, you know, like a, a really like common thing they always say in business is you don't have to connect the dots. Don't connect the dots for people. And I watched this and I was like, why did no one tell me this? Like, a th- that's something mom never told you. Like, yes. I sp- have spent, you know, 98% of my life connecting the dots for people about things that I say all the time. I waste so much time connecting the dots and trying to make sure that I am understood and re-understood and always understood so that there's no way I can be misunderstood. Like, it is exhausting. And that's part of why being on social media is exhausting with people who are determined to misconstrue you.
2: Totally. So first of all, that was definitely Bethany Frankel on a TikTok. I saw. I'm you did fascinated by her TikTok. I know exactly the TikTok that you're talking okay. about. Um, so it was definitely her. And yeah, I think that that it's it's good advice that like you know t- take yourself like you have a podcast where you put your thoughts and opinions out into the world twice a week. If somebody. You don't owe – you never signed a contract that says if somebody doesn't like what I say or they want, you know, follow up on what I say, they can tweet at me or email me. You never said that you were going to do that. You, right. you have a platform to, to, to express yourself, and that's where you choose to do it. I think that so often when folks are are making making a platform that others can, like, dial into or listen to, there's this weird expectation that you are going to be available to explain yourself, to connect those dots, to – Follow up on what you mean, twenty four seven at my disposal, and if you don't, it's a problem. And I never, I don't remember signing a contract saying that, and so I expressly don't connect the dots. If I say something on my podcast and you don't like it, well, I'm sorry, you know, I, I'm 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 not going to, you know, spend my energy doing a back and forth with someone who I feel like is truly not interested in understanding my perspective. If you actually are like interested in like a thoughtful exchange, totally good. But so many people aren't interested in that. They just want to like siphon your energy and Mm -hmm. and, like, you know, turn your express, turn your self-expression into something that's about them. And I'm not, I don't play that game.
1: Right. Yes. So would you say overall, let me make this question more open-ended. How do you feel about social media? Oh, what a good question.
2: I, it's an evolving thing for me. Social media, when I was a young kid growing up in Midlothian, Virginia, uh, social media and the internet in general is what allowed me to find who I was and who I was going to be in the world. You know, I grew up, you know, as you probably know, growing up in Mechanicsburg, like, or Mechanicsville, um, it's a pretty, like, particular kind of place, I guess. And if you're, I, I guess I always felt out of place growing up where I did. And the day that my parents brought home like a clunky computer and set it up in our computer room, <laughs> it was like my parents had given me a pair of wings where I finally was like, oh my God, there is a whole world outside of Virginia. I got to get out there in that world. I got to find my place in it. So I will always see social media and the internet as this tool of discovery, as this, this thing that feels like freedom to me. But these days, it's a thing that also feels like exhaustion to me. It's a thing that also feels like an energy suck to me, right? Like, I think that our social media platforms have gotten to a place where they're so unhealthy and so toxic. And it is so difficult for everybody, no matter who you are, to show up there authentically and thoughtfully and looking for thoughtful connection. I think there's a lot of incentivizing of the opposite there's a lot of incentivizing of you know extremism or outrageousness or salaciousness as opposed to the amplification and incentivizing of thoughtfulness or curiosity or ex- exploration and so i want to get back to a place where social media platforms and the internet in general feel like discovery feel like creativity feel like freedom feel like care feel like protection and not feel like an exhausting, you know, time suck that you just feel worse when you spend an hour mindlessly scrolling.
1: Yes. Um, you said that you felt a bit like an outcast in Mid- Midlothian. Am I saying that right? Midlothian? Yes. Um, can you talk more about that? Like what what was the town like and what were you like?
2: Yeah. I mean, I would actually be, I mean, it's, it is, it's what's changed a lot. This was I was growing up there, you know, in the nineties. So it's definitely changed a lot. So I don't, I don't want to make it seem like I'm crapping on it because it's, it's not, it's not a bad place. But when I was growing up there, I'll put it this way. If folks have ever seen the movie Donnie Darko, fun fact, uh, the town in the movie Donnie Darko is based on Midlothian, my town. And I think the movie does a really good job of describing what it is like. Uh, it is when I was growing up there. I guess I would describe it as feeling like I grew up nowhere and also everywhere. It was just a very nondescript, very small suburban town where everybody knew each other. And it felt stifling to me. You know, I, looking back now as an adult, I think it had a lot to do with me being queer. I think I didn't understand a lot about my own identity. And I was sort of, because I was an adolescent, really expressing that, those feelings of angst as an expressions of, of my feelings about Midlothian. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also went to a very small, very white Catholic all-girls school, which I had a great experience in school, but it also was an experience of not really feeling like I could truly be myself and not even really knowing what that would even look like or feel like. And so I, I grew up very sort of repressed and confused and sort of lonely for something or longing for something that I didn't even really know or understand what that something was. Mm. And truly it was one of my when my parents got me a computer and we got hooked up to America Online <laughs> that I first started having experiences with people that felt like me, right? Like my first online experiences were joining a um x-files super fan message board which like god saying that out loud is very (laughs) embarrassing but i was obsessed with the x-files growing up and i kind of still am but (laughs) you know it was like i didn't know that there could be i didn't know that there were collectives of people who were interested in my same things the same weird shit i was interested in as a young person i didn't know that there were other people out there who were interested in it and like you know, when you're growing up in a small town and you know, I didn't you know, I wasn't driving and so you really depend on I really depended on my parents to introduce me to culture. And so I remember every now and then my parents would drive me to this record store in the city uh called Plan 9 Records. Yeah. And you remember Plan 9? Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. god. Shout out to Plan 9 like thank god for that record store. But my dad is a big jazz fan and they have a ba- the Plan 9 in Carytown in Richmond had a huge jazz section. And every now and then he'd be like, I'm going to go to the record store. And I could not get my shoes on fast enough. (laughs) I could not get my coat on fast enough. I would be like waiting in the car, like, let's go. Because I just didn't have access to culture at my fingertips the way that we do now with the internet. It just was such a different place. And so, yeah, I grew up confused and longing for things. And Thank God for the little pockets of culture that I, that I did have access to before I had regular internet access.
1: Um, how old were you when, when you got that computer and when you got on America or on AOL?
2: I was 12. I remember it. So clearly. Um, This is still back in the days where like people who are younger listening to this are thinking, what the hell are you talking about? But it would be that horrible noise. Like, eek, eek, yeah. eek, like horrible. <laughs> Your mom would make a phone call. You'd be like, mom, hang up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember it like it was yesterday because it truly was like the first time that I understood there was a, a world out there beyond Midlothian, Virginia. Um, and I you know, when I was growing up, I used to really have this kind of sad, I don't, I don't know if fear is the right word, this sad understanding that I was going to live and die my whole life in Midlothian Virginia. Mm. And I never thought I would leave my hometown. I never thought I would have a partner uh, because I was queer and I, I didn't really understand what that what that meant for me. But I, I, I knew that it meant that I was going to be probably alone for my whole life. And I feel like if you're thinking these kinds of things at like 11, 12, that's pretty sad. If you're thinking like, oh, my life is going to begin and end in this small town and I'm never going to know, you know, a full life. But that's really really how I felt. I just felt everything I saw around me didn't feel like it was for me. And I didn't see anything else as a viable option because... You know, when you're living in a small town, you just don't see a lot. And I guess in my mind, I thought, I'll probably get a job as a hairstylist or a dental hygienist or an administrative assistant if I'm lucky. And no, you know, those are not like no shade to those jobs, but I I just wasn't, I I really had a very limited understanding of what my life could look like. Mm -hmm. And I had was very resigned from a very early age of my life will begin and end in this small town. And that's just it. And. Thank God for my parents getting me hooked up to the internet and America Online because I got to see different ways that people lived and, you know, imagine a life outside of my small town. And I had never heard of things like feminism. I had never heard of things like racial justice. I had never heard of any of these concepts. They were all new concepts that I was exploring myself and they would go on to become such foundational aspects of who I am today. And so, I'm so I'm so thankful for the internet. As, as hard as it has been showing up on social media, I'm so thankful that it existed for me because it saved me.
1: Is I saw Donnie Darko, but it was so long ago I'm kind of forgetting. Is it a town where people don't leave usually?
2: Oh, so in Donnie Darko, it's kind of a small cookie cutter, superficial town where everybody is kind of the same. Mm-hmm. And if you're not the same. You just, like, are a total outsider. Keep in mind, I was watching this as an adolescent, so, like, I was really projecting a lot of, like, <laughs> yeah, I'm an outsider. Nobody understands me. Like, I was in a, in a very, like, alty Holden Caulfield vibe as I was like, watching these things. But, yeah, I would say, like, the part... And it's definitely changed today, but the way that it felt when I was growing up there was it was a place that people didn't really leave. And mm-hmm. I remember a big kind of a decision that I made as a young person was a lot of my graduating high school class went to our, um, went to college in Richmond, because Richmond has a lot of fantastic colleges in the city. So there's University of Richmond, there's VCU, where my parents went, there's so many colleges right there. And so, you know, it, when you graduate, there is sort of, it makes sense to not go too far, mm. because there's so much good stuff there. And I knew that when I graduated, I was like, this is my chance to get out. And looking back now, I'm like, oh, those colleges are great and there's nothing wrong with them. But at at the time, it was so hard for me to see that all I knew is I wanted to leave and I wanted to go someplace else and I wanted to see what life was like outside of Virginia. I didn't go far. I went to college in North Carolina. So that's just like one state (laughs) away. But um, yeah, I just, it was... It just—it felt like the kind of place where folks could, a lot of folks could happily live in Midlothian their whole life, go down the road to Richmond for college and live perfectly happy, fulfilled lives. And I knew that wasn't for me.
1: Where did you end up going to college?
2: East Carolina University. Uh, Shout out to like, I mean, it's a shitty regional North Carolina college, but like, God, I loved that college. I had such a good time at college and- Just putting a little bit of distance between Mm -hmm. me and where I grew up. And I also, my my older brother growing up was like, I'll just put it this way. He was prom king like every year that he could have been prom king. He was always the captain of every sports team. Even today, he is like a kind of a local celebrity in our town. Um, you know what you probably, I mean I think people can relate to what it's like growing up in, in the shadow, shadow yeah. of a very successful very talented very popular charismatic older sibling and so you know when I went to college it was like my first time really exploring who I was a- away from my family away from you know all that, all those mm-hmm. expectations and all the pressures of being in midlothian right yeah. I
1: loved college. I also wanted to, I grew up in a very, I felt, uh, homogenous conformist town where I felt like an outcast as well. And I felt like, I mean, I only went an hour and 15 minutes away and I, I was determined to go even further away. But then I kind of fell in love with this. My mom was, she was like, just please look at this one college. And I'm like, I've never heard of it. It's too close, but I looked at it. Um and I fell in love with it and I ended up going there and it was actually a very good choice for me. Um, but f- for me so you that grew up
2: in Orange County.
1: I did, yeah. And I went to Pomona College in Claremont. Got um, it. And I I loved those four years because for me that that was you know because I was I was not under my parents' roof anymore and I was not in Orange County anymore and it was just a chance to kind of begin to be on my own and figure out who I was, even though I look back and I'm like, I wasn't really, really on my own, (laughs) but enough.
2: Yeah. It's our, our experiences sound very similar. And like, I know a lot of people from Orange County and a lot of them say the same thing that like, it just felt very Mm homogenous. And if you weren't a very particular kind of person, you could just feel very out of place in a way that kind of defined your experiences. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, even though you didn't go far, just even getting an hour and some change away can really be the space that you need to start di- like tapping into like who you are. Right. Cause I feel like it's so, it was so hard for me to tap into who I was or what I wanted or my own perspectives when I was in, under my parents' roof in our small town. And even just getting a little bit away, I was like, Oh, I can, I'm starting to hear my own voice in my head mm-hmm. Here, up until that point the voice in my head was somebody else's and and being away i was really able to dial into my own voice dictating my you know my inner world
1: right but it sounds like you knew pretty young that you at least didn't like guys
2: uh yes yeah early on it's i knew early on that i was not a straight person um i defined myself as queer so i guess i i like all types <laughs> But, you know, it, when I was growing up, and again, it was a different time, like, this was in the the height of, like, the AIDS crisis of the 90s. When I was growing up, there was nothing worse to be than gay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm Black, and in the Black community, we had a a, a, real, a real issue with homophobia that I think that we are coming to terms with now. And if I'm being honest, the figure that really stood out to me as like my beacon was the late great Prince because Prince was not a woman, not a man. He was something that you'll never understand, right? <laughs> like he was like playing with gender and sexuality But Black people fuck with Prince, right? Like, Mm -hmm. he was like the one figure who was like, well, you know, I I would see my cousins and my uncles use homophobic slurs, but they would still listen to Prince. And so he was really the icon that was, I I held out to say, you know, I'll be okay one day. And And like, being someone that doesn't necessarily fit in a particular, you know, binary or box that will be celebrated one day by my own people because people love Prince. Like it really was like, I'm so like Prince's music is hugely important to me. And just him as a, a persona who played with all of these things. I was so obsessed with him growing up and still am.
1: <laughs> He's the best.
2: He really is.
1: Um, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to do, gonna do just me or everyone. I want to talk to you guys real quick about Policy Genius. Rising inflation and insurance rates are concerning, but did you know that one of the easiest ways to save money is by reshopping your home and auto insurance? Policy Genius customers saved an average of $1,250 per year over what they were paying for home and auto insurance. Policy Genius is your one-stop shop to find and buy the insurance you need. Head to policygenius.com to get started. Policy Genius will show you price estimates for policies that fit your search. If you like what they find, they'll get you switched over for free. Customers who bundled their home and auto policies with Policy Genius saved an average of $1,250 per year over what they were paying. Policy Genius has saved new customers an average of $350 per year on home insurance. The team at- Policy Genius are on hand every step of the way to help you make decisions with confidence. The Policy Genius team works for you, not the insurance companies. I'm just going to say that again because I just want to underline that. Uh, with Policy Genius, they are not—you're not going to the insurance companies. They are a team of people who help you find the best quotes. Uh, which is, it's priceless. The Policy Genius team works for you, not the insurance companies. So Policy Genius doesn't add on extra fees, they don't sell your info to third parties, and they've earned thousands of five-star reviews across Google and Trustpilot. Head to policygenius.com to get your free home insurance quotes and see how much you could save. Again, that's policygenius.com. All right, let's do Just Me or Everyone. This is where... People share things they think or do, and they wonder, is it just me or is it everyone? And we have a song. Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done.
2: Is it just me
1: or everyone? All right, Bridget, do you have a just me or everyone?
2: I sure do. So is it just me or does everyone, when they're feeling a little bit sad put on a sad song intentionally to make themselves themselves feel sadder. And then when it's playing, maybe you get a little distracted and you're like, you know, I didn't feel sufficiently sad enough. I'm going to play it back again until I feel the sadness that I was hoping to connect with, with this song. Is it just me or is it everybody? (laughs) Ah!
1: I don't do that, but I do something sim. This is not, this is not that similar. I feel like if uh, this is this is going to be like an optical illusion of similarity in that if you look at it in a certain way, it's similar. And if you look at it in a different way, it's not similar at all. But I will like read something and then I'll be like, OK, I'm really going to pay attention to this. No. Or like cue up a certain thing to watch. And then I'll watch it and realize I didn't pay attention. And then I have to watch it over and over again or read something over and over again because my mind wanders. But if I'm feeling sad, I don't. I usually don't put on a sad song to connect with the sadness. I am like in a phase of life now or a mindset where I put on music to try to get me out of the sad feeling. Ooh, um
2: gross. Look at you.
1: I don't know <laughs> if it is. I actually think it might not be. It might be like trying to suppress feelings. Huh. But the other day I was feeling like sad, but like it, like it was kind of like pent up. And I was like, maybe I should put on a sad something or other to try to like release it. I don't know.
2: Oh, I nothing m- brings me more joy than if I'm feeling funky, putting on a sad song or a fucked up movie. Mm. Oof, I'm like, yeah, let's just like totally you know, lean into the sad vibes and just get it out.
1: What are um, your, like, what are your go-to sad songs, sad movies or fuck, oh, oh, fucked up fucked Oh my God, movies?
2: good go-to. Well, a good fucked up sad movie that I love is The Squid and the Whale. If I'm ever feeling oh, yeah. sad, that's a movie that I can put on and be like, yep, pe- family dynamics be crazy. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm connecting to that. Um Sad songs, I love The Smiths for sad, reflecting. Um Yeah, I have a whole, like, I used to live in New York and come to D.C. a lot and was back and forth and I would take the train and I have a, had a specific kind of sad train playlist <laughs> for when I wanted to look out the window and pretend to be yes. in a movie listening to sad songs.
1: <laughs> I so I also lived in New York and whenever I would take uh, a cat before Uber, whenever I would take a taxi to the airport, that was when I would I would lean my head against the window and I would have the most like cinematic rides of imagining myself just yes. you know, close up on my face through the window.
2: You're doing something very
1: important and dramatic.
2: Yeah, you're essentially Scarlett Johansson and lost yes. in translation, yes. like putting your head up against the window, just like letting it all yeah. go by. <laughs> um, are you a Noah Bombach fan? Oh yes. Yeah. I'm a, I am a big like movie person. I something about his movies, you know, I really click into the nostalgia and mm-hmm. the like, I don't know. They're they're sad in a way that feels very familiar to me, even though I didn't grow up like, you know, he's a white man who grew up with, like, artsy parents in Brooklyn. Right. And that's and not my experience. Are but your parents, I connect to it. Are your parents together? They are together. They're together. They have an interesting marriage, but they are still married. Um, my parents love each other very deeply, and they have the kind of marriage that I don't hope – I hope that my marriage – if I get married, I hope that my marriage is not like theirs, but I really respect their marriage. If that makes sense. Mm. It's like, a, it's like a very like complex kind of like we've, we've been together for decades. We know each other. We really vibe with each other, but like it's, I wish that they, I, I wish that they had, they had a more kind of like fun. They don't, their marriage is not based on fun. It's based mm. on getting shit done. I guess I'll put it that way.
1: Hmm. Like, it's serious? Yeah. Do they have fun in them separately?
2: Yes. Oh, my God. So much. My my parents are both, like, hilarious and so fun. I think they came from a generation where marriage was about the successful raising of successful children and, like, Mm. running a successful household. And I think that they it takes a little bit of work for them to connect in their fun and their joy together. Mm -hmm. But they're both very joyful, fun-loving people. But, like, I think that they are, I think that to raise kids, I I don't have, I'm not a parent, so what the fuck do I know? But I think that to raise kids, it takes a kind of, like, we're just in this together, kind of almost like a business mindset. And I think that that is, like, something that dominates their marriage. It's not, I I wouldn't say it's bad, but they are definitely a, a partnership that is about results. And Mm. I, I, for me, I think of partner romantic partnerships of of like, don't you want fun and joy and silliness and jokes? And it's like, no, we want successful college educated children and a household that runs well, (laughs) you know?
1: Oh my gosh. (laughs) I got to like clip that part and play it to my husband and then (laughs) Although he would just be like, see, I feel because I feel like I'm sometimes the one that's more about like the successful running of the household. I think it's just we just have this is just such a a helpful wake up call to remember that we should like be more fun and light, because sometimes it is just about like getting shit done and kind of like being in in the shit together and less about having fun. Thank you 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 for this wake up call.
2: You all are parents, right?
1: Yeah, I have a five, we have a five-year-old
2: and a three-year-old. See, I think, I mean, like, first of all, God bless you. I don't know how anybody Thank is you. parenting during, <laughs> like, I, I guess I just want to hold space for, like, parenting during COVID? What the hell, right? I can't <laughs> even imagine how hard it is. All my, all my friends who are parents, like, they are fed up. They are not okay. They have like, been, been through something traumatic. And I just want to, like, lift that up. I think it's really hard. Thank you very much.
1: See Tony, I'm a hero. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, you keep saying that I'm a piece of shit who doesn't amount for anything, and I'm just saying
2: that's not true. And I you say it you with to your not eyes. Bring
0: it up on the show. That's <laughs> oh, is to be that a, private time? <laughs>
2: is that a thing? Like, um no. Like people don't want to hear. It's Like, oh, leave your parent talk. To why don't you start a parenting podcast? Nobody wants to hear it. Is it like that kind of
1: vibe. <laughs> no, not at all. I was just, just <laughs> pretending.
2: Um,
0: Tony, how do you feel about Noah Baumbach movies?
1: Have you seen them? Squid and the Whale. I'm forgetting. I have. I've seen
0: Squid and the Whale. I, I don't remember, like, specifics about them well because it's been a long time, but I do remember liking that movie. What are they? And now I'm spacing on what his other movies are. Did he. He did Marriage Story. No.
2: he Did he do Marriage that's Story? He, he did Marriage Story. Yeah. That's him. Yeah.
0: Um, what are his he, older ones? Because those are the ones I know. Oh, i just gotten um, bad at keeping up. Toy
1: totally blanking. There's that one that involves tennis, and then there's the one with Nicole Kidman. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I can uh oh I my can gosh. do some Googling here.
2: I'm so sad that I'm also blanking because he's one of my favorite filmmakers.
0: Isn't the one with tennis also uh
2: Oh, here Google? we go. Wait, okay. Squid and the Whale, marriage story. He wrote and direct Margot at the Wedding That's While We're kidding. Young, Meyer Wirt Stories with Adam Sandler, um, Greenberg, Francis Ha, Mistress America, White Noise. Um yeah, he I something I I really like his movie. There's something about them that is kind of, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I felt like I, when I was growing up, I was longing for something and I didn't even know what. I feel mm-hmm. like his films really like capture that well. Of like, I don't know what it is I'm longing for, but it's something.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, you know who I feel like ca- captures a bit of that um, is Mike White. Mm-hmm. You, did you see White Lotus?
2: I sure fucking did. I watched every episode and I loved it. Yes. I was like hanging on every episode. And I think you're exactly right, right? Like this feeling of like I don't know if it's ennui or something else. I think it is ennui. It, yeah, it's like an this
1: existential like existential ennui.
2: Totally. Um that like those are the things those are the kinds of movies and shows that I o- and I always connect with of like, oh they're upper middle class but sad. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> I'm like yes, give it to me.
1: <laughs> um, and did you see Good Good Girl? Not Good Girl. D- yes, Good Girl. Good Girl. I did not. Oh, uh, with Jennifer Aniston and uh,
2: oh yes, I have. Um, yeah. Also, shout out to Jennifer Aniston's like drama roles because she's so good. Um, in them, I loved Good Girl. Um, I, and Jake see, Gyllenhaal. Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, yeah. I. That that's another movie that I think captures, first of all, good like good deep cut mention. But yeah, it really <laughs> Well you captures- mentioned Holden
1: Caulfield earlier and he doesn't he change his name to Holden?
2: hmm uh, oh God, that movie. The idea of like working kind of a soulless job and then projecting a lot of your feelings of unhappiness and lack of fulfillment and misery onto someone who actually can is not an appropriate vessel for them. Story of my life. Oh, same. Same. (laughs) That's a story
1: of my (laughs) teens, 20s, and part of my 30s. I mean, oh, my God. Oh, yes. 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 Okay. So clearly we're best friends. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. My new best friend. That's right. Um, Do you have anyone you'd like to tell to go fuck themselves? Oh,
2: I do. And this was a week where I feel like a lot of people could go fuck (laughs) themselves. So it's really a tough one. But I have to come, I have to say, like, she gets a lot of hate and I don't want to pile on, but I have to talk about Kim Kardashian. Okay. Her Met Gala dress, talking in the press about how she starved herself to fit into Marilyn Monroe's gown. I just, I, we're not doing that anymore. It's so regressive. So many young girls look up to Kim Kardashian. It is not cool at all to use your massive platform to talk about starving yourself to fit into a dress as a reasonable or an appropriate thing to do. Frankly, she should know better. Um, yeah, I was sort of horrified to see so many outlets amplify that like it was a cool thing. Mm-hmm. We're not doing that anymore. It's really harmful. I feel bad for the young girls who might see that and say, oh, I'll just starve myself to fit into this prom dress uh kim kardashian go fuck yourself for that one like you should know better than to glamorize starvation to fit into a dress for them for a a a one-night event not cool not cool so then
1: say hey kim hey kim
2: go fuck yourself
0: hey hey hey, (laughs) hey, go fuck yourself
1: (laughs) oh my god i didn't know that was i love it i love it i know i should have warned you um Yes, I've seen a lot of talk about this and I didn't know specifically what the issue was. So thank you for filling me in. I thought maybe people were just saying that she shouldn't, because I think maybe she has another item of Marilyn Monroe's because I saw people being like, doesn't she have any of her own clothes or like kind of making jokes like that. So I didn't realize that she was saying she had starved herself.
2: Yeah, she. I think that she has two of Marilyn Monroe's dresses and also... A clump of her hair, which is something. How'd she get that? No idea. <laughs> Apparently, you can buy a clump of her hair. Um, yeah, I just don't think it's cool to advocate self-starvation. Like, we're, right. not, I, we're not doing that anymore. Like, it's not, I don't think it's cute. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's fun. I don't think it's glamorous. I think it's right. really, like, irresponsible. Especially when people
1: look to the Kardashians as a sign that it's okay to have a big butt.
2: Exactly. And other it. big items. Exactly. And there were other, so there was a, a photo of her looking stunning in that dress wearing a fur coat. But then there was another picture of her where she was not like the, like they had clearly, like she clearly like wasn't fitting into the dress. Mm-hmm. And I feel like promoting the images where it, where one would think like, oh, you looked at the starvation thing worked, like you were able to fit into it when that wasn't the case, I think it makes it seem as though. A, starving yourself to fit into a dress is an appropriate thing to do, which it's not. And B, that it like is possible, but it, she was not able to fit into that dress, and she right. but she still presented on on social media a a, a a vibe that like she was. And I guess I just, you know, I I know that the Kardashians, their whole thing is sort of this like hyper real, you know, thing where you don't know what's real, you don't know what's fake. But I just think when when so many young girls look up to you, yeah, don't give them don't project weirdness around weight and eating it's like we're not doing that anymore like we were i just don't i just don't like it
1: yeah i agree um it was uh twitter was weird on monday night because it was like excl. my feed at least was exclusively roe v wade and matt gala and then occasionally like someone would try to combine them in a joke but it just (laughs) felt very uh schizophrenic almost like yes it's i'm can't parse going back and forth between the two
2: it's it was weird weir- it was a very weird day and i also think like it just it almost seemed like a hunger games thing of <laughs> like you know one side of social media is like oh this completely inaccessible mm-hmm. wealthy person gala and then the other side is like oh people having their rights stripped from them you know yeah. it just was like a really weird evening I guess right so so one last question with there are no
1: girls on the internet um how does it work do you like it the show is so well done um it's clearly produced like how do you guys come up with with show with uh episode ideas and how do you put it together
2: yeah this is a great question so in my day job with ultraviolet I do a lot of work around platform accountability and like honestly, just trying to work with social media platforms to be safer, you know, better spaces, particularly for marginalized people. And so um, through that work, I'm often like pretty dialed in to different conversations that pertain to that. So it's a lot of just like like putting together episodes and, and guest ideas from just like being in that work. But then a lot of it is like, I don't know everything about being online. And so people will flag things for me. People will email me and say, hey, did you see this? So I would say it's a combination of them both because I certainly don't know everything there is to know about the experience of every marginalized person's experience online. And so I, it's definitely like a collaborative thing. And so if folks have interesting stories about, you know, what the experience of being a traditionally marginalized person on the internet, I would love to hear them. And that doesn't just pertain to like race or gender or sexuality. Like if you are, an immigrant, or if you are someone who's older on social media, you are also traditionally marginalized. And so or if someone who is a veteran, you know, it's like, I'm interested in telling the story of all different stripes of folks who have been traditionally and historically marginalized or underrepresented on the internet.
1: Um, if someone listening is like, Oh, I have a story, wh- what is the best way for them to reach the show?
2: Oh my god, you can email me at hello at tangoti.com. That's T-A-N-G-O-T-I dot com. That's our our podcast email address. Or just hit me up on Twitter or on Instagram. Like I'm ve- I'm very easy to find on the internet and I would love to hear. Like seriously, do not be shy. I, I love I live for this stuff.
1: Tell everyone where they can find you and plug all, all your stuff.
2: You can hear There Are No Girls on the Internet, my podcast on iHeartRadio. You can find it on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcast on. You can follow me on Twitter at Bridget Marie or on Instagram at Bridget Marie in D.C.
1: Thank you so much. You guys, if you like what you're hearing or even if you don't, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Five stars. Um, I read the reviews. I read them on a show in a segment called iTunes Comment of the Week, although I know I should change it. And sometimes I do change it to Apple Podcasts Comments of the Week because that is what the platform is called now. (laughs) Uh, And we read them on the show. I just said that. Uh, Also, I'm on Patreon, patreon.com slash Alison Rosen patreon, patreon. Uh, putting up an episode actually when you hear this i will have already put up an episode a bonus episode of the, of the friend zone that's my patreon bonus podcast with everyone's favorite betsy sidaro we answered all your questions all your probing questions we talked about a restaurant in colorado where she's from called casa bonita where you can sit in a jail cell you can sit in a <laughs> this theme you can sit in a that theme and and watch people cave dive. It's come up and eat sopapillas. It's come up on the show before we There's brought it up South, again.
0: A South Park episode about...
1: Yes, it. exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's a special Colorado thing. And I was just like... Oh, and she, she said the funniest... I uh, See, I'm giving away the exclusive pay content, but she said <laughs> that occasionally she'll smell... Something will like make her think of the smell of ground beef and chlorine and it reminds her of this place. Because I was like, the whole place, it just seems like it's... I just think it would smell like chlorine. But anyway, and more gems like that. And there's love where you can text me. and I'll text you back. There's you can watch the videos of the Thursday show. All sorts of fun stuff. If you sign up for a year, you get two months free. Patreon.com. That's a good deal. That's right. Slash Alison Rosen. Uh, But this video you can get on YouTube. YouTube YouTube.com slash Alison Rosen. Follow me on social media at Alison Rosen. Twitter and Instagram. Listen to my other shows, Childish and Upworthy Weekly. Tony, what about you?
0: Uh, Twitter and Instagram at Tony Thaxton And my podcast Bizarre Albums Every Tuesday And uh, get those Motion City Soundtrack tickets We'll be on tour June and July So that's it for now Wonderful
1: Bridget, thank you so much for joining us This was delightful Listeners, thank you for listening I love you, you matter Goodbye
0: Hey, do you know About the Alison Rosen show